Emmanuel, God with us. That has been the theme that we have been concentrating on. Let me just remind you of some of the things we've been thinking about. In the first place, we were reminded that the prophet Isaiah predicted that a child would be born in extraordinary circumstances and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Various interpretations of that prophecy abound, but the one thing that we can be sure of is that when the New Testament was written, there was a record that when the angel came to Joseph and said that Mary was with child, the message was that the child would be called Emmanuel, God with us, but also that his specific name would be Jesus. And Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. Why would God choose to be with his creation? Answer, to save people from their sins. To begin to understand Christmas, to begin to understand incarnation, we need to understand the immensity of human sin and the necessity of salvation. For Emmanuel is all about God being with us for the express purpose of saving us from our sins. The second thing we noticed was in John's Gospel, in the famous prologue, the opening verses of the first chapter. Uh, the wonderful words there go something like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to explain that this Word was the one in whom all life exists that all things were created by him, that nothing that exists was not created by him. And then he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, God with us. And the express purpose, we're told in that particular context, of God being with us, was that he might reveal himself to us. There are different ways in which people relate to God. There are those who operate on the basis of they will figure out what God is like according to their own understanding. That is at best speculation. People think that God is like this. People assume that God is like that. They look at the way, for instance, human fathers operate and they say if that's how human fathers operate, then if we simply balloon human fathers up to heavenly uh, balloon standards, then we've got a picture of God. And this, of course, there's all these kinds of speculations usually lead us to grotesque image of God. Somebody said to me on one occasion, I don't believe in God. So I said, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in him either. You see, all kinds of people have got all kinds of images of God. That's, that is speculation. The other approach is revelation. That is God taking initiative and revealing himself to us. And John chapter 1 tells us that God was dwelling with us in order that he might give in the person of Jesus a picture of himself that we might understand the character and nature and the purposes of God. What a wonderful thing then it is to understand that Emmanuel is all about God saving from sin and all about God revealing himself to a confused humanity. But then the third thing we noticed was from Psalm 23. You remember Psalm 23 is all about the shepherd and, and the Lord being the, the one who cares for his sheep. And among other things, the psalm goes on to say that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, and the reason being, for thou art with me. Surely the response to God with us is, yes, thou art with me. 
And the ramifications of that, among other things, are that I will recognize his comfort even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. And so we recognize Emmanuel with us to save us from our sins, to reveal to us the character and nature of God, and to bring us comfort in the vicissitudes of life. Well, that's what we've said so far. It took considerably longer than that, but that gives you some little idea of how quickly I could have done it if I'd felt like it. Well, now we come to the fourth way of looking at Emmanuel. I want to direct your attention to the epistle of Paul to the Colossians and the first chapter. And in the section starting in verse 24 and going through to verse 27, the Apostle Paul explains that he's having a very rough time. It's very difficult for him in his ministry that he's been subjected to all kinds of pressures and persecutions. But he says, quite frankly, it's well worth it. And the reason that he says it's well worth it is that his ministry is so vital and so important. In fact, as far as he's concerned, his ministry is worth dying for. His ministry is worth dying for. And then he goes on to explain why he feels so deeply about his ministry. While he feels it's worth suffering for, why he feels it's worth dying for. He says, the reason that my ministry is so significant is that it is all about mystery that has been revealed. It's all about a mystery that has been revealed. Now, that may not make an awful lot of sense to us, but it made a lot of sense to the people that Paul was writing to. For instance, in the Old Testament, there's a verse, it's one of my favorites, Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What that suggests to us is that there are vast mysteries, there are vast secrets concerning the universe of which we know nothing. Now, I don't think anybody would dispute that at all. What perhaps some people would dispute would be the things that we don't know are actually known to God and belong to him because he is the one who put all this mysterious cosmos together in the first place. But then he goes on to say this, that in the universe there are vast mysteries that are known to God and which belong to God, but God has chosen to reveal some of them to us. The things that he's chosen not to reveal belong to him exclusively. The things that he has chosen to reveal belong to us as very precious gifts and therefore us and we are to teach them to our children. So in the Old Testament, they already had the idea of mysteries belonging to God and being revealed. There's another example of this in the story of Daniel. You remember Daniel was living under the rule and reign of a tyrant called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar apparently used to do a lot of dreaming at night, and so he kept in his court a number of men whose job it was to interpret his dreams for him. On one occasion, he had a dream, which unfortunately he forgot, but he wanted the interpretation of it nevertheless. So he called in his interpreters and said, you must interpret my dream. I can't remember what it was. You figure out what it was, interpret it, and if you don't, I'll chop off your heads. The life expectancy of dream interpreters in Nebuchadnezzar's course was tenuous in the extreme, and life insurance was extremely expensive. Anyway... Daniel heard about this and determined that he would do something about it because he had a secret. And his secret was that he knew the God who reveals mysteries. 
And so, and the story unfolds. And that is an illustration of what Paul understood when he said, the ministry that I have is worth suffering for, is worth dying for, for this very simple reason. God has chosen at this time to reveal some superlative truths that have been hidden from generations, but now are made plain. You say, well, wow, Paul, what is it that you've discovered? What is it that you know? What is it that you're propagating? What is it that God has finally revealed? And the answer almost seems anticlimactic at first. He said, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You say, is that it? Yeah, that's it. Well, wow, why, why all this buildup? Just Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, think of it for a minute. Just think about it for a minute. What the Apostle Paul is actually preaching and teaching is this. That the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from eternity down here to earth, who had been with the Father for all eternity and came, laid aside his glory, we've been thinking about this during these recent weeks, and assumed our humanity and lived down here on earth, not only in order that he might reveal God to us, but in order that he might accept our sin and the judgment for our sin and die our death and go down into the grave and rise again from the dead and ascend to the Father, that this living Christ in some way is now prepared and willing to come and live not only with us, but in us. In us. You see, it is an inadequate gospel that simply says that Jesus is the Son of God. It is an inadequate gospel that says Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel goes on much further than that and says that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, not by faith. The life that I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and who lives in me. Now, if, if, you, if you stop to think about this, this is either the most utter nonsense or the most superlative truth. Now, there were clues that this would be a mystery that eventually would be unfolded in the Old Testament. God had said all along that he didn't want to be totally remote from his people. And so, for instance, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they built a tabernacle, a tent. And it was built according to divine pattern. And when it was all ready, the, the glory of the Lord shone in the midst of it. And you remember, there was a pillar of cloud by day, and there was a pillar of fire by night. And God was present among them. But it was an awesome, it was a fearsome thing. They had, this, they had this picture of a holy God who was there in our midst, like a cloud hidden from them, and like a fire burning and hardly approachable. The same sort of thing happened in the temple when they built it in Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord filled the place, but only the priest could go near. But God was promising all along the day would come when he would dwell within his people. And this came about when the risen Christ sent the Holy Spirit to actually take up residence in the hearts of his people. And so the Christian gospel, the mystery, has been unveiled. And it is this, Christ died for me and rose again to live in me in the power of his resurrection in the person of the Holy Spirit. But Paul goes on a bit further than that. He says the mystery is not just Christ in you. He says the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now what is happening? Well, if Christ is in you, 
If the living Christ by the Holy Spirit has come into your life, would it not be reasonable to assume that there will be some differences, there will be some changes? Well, of course it would. There's all the difference in the world between a house that's empty and a house with someone living in it. The house that is empty is cold and dark and bleak. The house that is lived in is warm and inviting. It's not just a house, it's a home. In exactly the same way, when Christ comes into a person's life, when we receive Christ by his Spirit into our lives, then he begins to make his presence known. He makes his presence known, for instance, by changing our interests, by changing our desires, by altering our aspirations, by working on our character, by dealing with our nature, by altering our attitudes. And it is a reasonable assumption that when the Lord Jesus Christ is received into a person's life, that person will begin to demonstrate change. Now, some people may not understand it. And they may look at that person and they say, I I don't understand this person. He hates what he used to love and he loves what he used to hate. He doesn't want to do the things he used to do. And now he started doing things he would never do before. Sometimes in a marriage, one member of the marriage receives Christ as their Savior and Lord. And Christ comes into their lives, and and this can cause stress in the marriage. For now, suddenly, one of them is moving off in a different direction. They have to do this with great sensitivity to their partner. But the key is that Christ has come into their lives. Now, if Christ comes into their lives and begins to presence himself there and show that he is there and begins to make change, this produces great hope and confidence. Why? Because if we believe that Christ is clearly in our lives and is making a difference and the change is becoming apparent, we become confident that if he has begun a good work in us, he will continue it and he will complete it. And one day we will find ourselves in his glorious presence. So, the Christ in you is the hope of glory. Just a word about hope. We, we use the word hope uh, somewhat differently from the New Testament. Sometimes we talk about hope, and it's, it's pretty hopeless. We've tried everything else, and in the end, we just have to hope. And we say it with such a plaintive air. But that is not New Testament hope. Let me illustrate it for you. I'm outside of school. A young student comes out, and I say, hello, are you a student here? Yes, I am. What grade are you in? I'm in the 12th grade. What are your plans? I hope to graduate in May. How's it going? Well, I need six credits. And what's happening? I'm getting straight Fs. What did you say your plan was? Uh, I hope to graduate in May. Now, in a situation like that, it's very delicate. And you you have to give encouragement where you can. So you say, how can I encourage this young man? Oh, I know. Um, At least you're consistent. Yes, and I like consistency. You're getting straight Fs. None of this, you know, inconsistent stuff. But but there's very little you can say to him because he hopes where there's no hope. I'm sorry if this is a bit close to the bone for some of you young people, but it's just an illustration. Then another student comes along and I say, hello, you're a student here? Yes, I'm in 12th grade. I say, what are your plans? I hope to graduate in May. And how's it going? Well, actually, I have all the credits that I need. I'm taking some courses down at UWM, just passing the time. And what are your plans, did you say? I hope to graduate. Now, you notice they both use the same word. I hope to graduate, says he. I hope to graduate, says she. But they will not have the same experience. For one hopes where it is utterly hopeless, and the other one hopes with overwhelming confidence. And that's New Testament hope. 
And here's the mystery that Paul proclaims. The good news that is no longer hidden from people. It is being broadcast and Paul said it is so important and so exciting. I don't care what I suffer in the course of propagating it. I don't even care if they take my life. I'm going to go on letting people know that Jesus Christ is alive and well on planet earth. And in the person of his Holy Spirit, he'll come into people's lives and he'll live his life in them. And when he begins to live his life in them, he starts to change them. And as people see the change and people experience the change, they will become confident that he having begun a good work in them will continue it and complete it and they'll finish up in glory. What a message. I kind of get worked up myself when I, when I think about it. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he's talking about the mystery of the indwelling. Let me ask you. Ask yourself a question. Has God opened your eyes to the fact that the Lord Jesus who came from heaven and lived on earth and died on a cross went down into the grave and rose again, is the one who in the person of the Holy Spirit credits his resurrection life to you as you have invited him to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior and he's alive in you. And is there any evidence of the difference that he makes? And are you filled with overwhelming confidence because when you see, as you look back over your life, the changes that he has made, you've seen the way that he's working inevitably, inexorably, to transforming you into his image, which will happen ultimately in glory. The hope of glory. Well, there's another passage that I want to identify for you. And this passage deals with what I would call the mutuality of the indwelling. It's in John chapter 14. And it's a record of what happened when Jesus met with his disciples for the last time prior to his crucifixion. It's sort of final instructions. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. And what, what a treasure it is that we have such a detailed record of what transpired in that private meeting. In the course of his talk to them, and giving those final instructions, the Lord Jesus said this, that very soon they would realize that he was in the Father. You've got to listen very carefully. Very soon they would realize that he was in the Father and that they were in him, and that he was in them. And then he went on to say that he was going to pray that God would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would be in them. Now you'll notice that in this rather complex statement, the Lord Jesus was talking about the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was talking about the fact that Christ would be in the Father. He was talking about the fact that Christ would be in the believer. He was talking about that the believer would be in Christ, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit would be in the believer. Now, now, I'll try to unravel all that for you and identify one or two specific things here, but get hold of the picture of mutuality. Christ in the Father, you in Christ, Christ in you, the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. An intertwining of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the life and affairs and experience of the believer. What does it mean, first of all, that Jesus said that you, then you will know that Christ is in the Father? Well, we do know, of course, that before the worlds were made, Jesus and the Father had been in a state of the most intimate fellowship. But that was broken, in a sense, when the Lord Jesus left the immediate presence of the Father and came down at the Incarnation. We know that he was sent from the Father, and then he was separated from the Father. For on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And the answer, of course, was the reason the father had turned his back on the son was that the son had now become a sin offering and he was separated from God for the sins of the world. But Jesus went down into death, rose again, and ascended to the father's right hand where he was welcomed now not only as the son of God by right, but also as the Savior of the world with authority invested in him because of his death and resurrection. And the Son is now, if you like, in the most intimate of relationships with the Father, not only enjoying the intimacy of relationship before the incarnation, but continuing to enjoy it and the added sense of being the Savior of the world in the most intimate of contacts with the Father. This means, of course, that salvation is now available to the whole world and is credible in the annals of the courts of heaven. So Christ is in the Father. But then he goes a step further, and he says to his disciples, and you are in me. Now this is one of the favorite expressions that the Apostle Paul picked up on. Over and over again in his letters, he talks about us being in Christ. To be in Christ basically means that God reckons to us all that he reckons to Christ. Or put it another way, that when a person is committed to Jesus Christ and become a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that person is no longer regarded by God as a little individual running around doing their own thing. That person, once they have become a disciple of Jesus Christ, is regarded by God as being part of a great big corporate whole called the body of Christ. They are in Christ. And among other things, that means that God reckons to them all that he reckons to Christ. So the Apostle Paul can say things like this, I have been crucified with Christ. How in the world can he say that? Because he understands that now in the divine reckoning, now that he's committed himself to Christ, the Father looks at Paul as if he is in Christ, and he's in Christ dying on the cross for his sins. That is why the believer says, there is now therefore no condemnation. I have been crucified with Christ. I am in Christ. I have borne the consequences of my sin in Christ. He goes on to say, and I was buried with Christ. But then he talks about being raised with Christ. And in the epistle of Ephesians, he talks about this wonderful truth that I'm now seated in the heavenly places in Christ. The idea, of course, is this, that now the believer is sealed in Christ, in the most intimate of union with him. But the Christ in whom the believer is sealed is in the Father. So it's like being double-wrapped. You're wrapped and sealed in Christ, and Christ is wrapped and sealed in the Father, and it's hard to imagine how you could be possibly more sealed, more secure than that. Unless, of course, you take the third step that he talked about, and that is that the Christ by the Holy Spirit is now in us. So I am in Christ, Christ is in the Father, and Christ by the Holy Spirit comes to live in my life. So I'm sealed in Christ, and Christ is sealed in the Father, and the Christ by the Holy Spirit lives within me and has taken a permanent residence in my life to give me the inner sense of assurance that it is well with my soul. This is the message. This is the message which is the mystery of the indwelling. This is the message of the mutuality of the indwelling. 
But the Apostle Paul goes a step further than that. And in Ephesians chapter 3, he brings up the subject of the indwelling Christ one more time. And this is in Ephesians chapter 3. And he prays for the believers in Ephesus. This is the sort of thing he prays. He prays that they might be strengthened with might by God's Spirit in their innermost person. I pray that you might be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the innermost person, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now here, of course, he's talking about the fact that not only am I secure in Christ, and Christ is sealed in the Father, and Christ by the Spirit is in me, but he's talking about the fact that I have assurance and I have empowerment too. For as I begin to understand that Christ by the Spirit lives in me, I can begin to understand that he lives in me in order that he might strengthen me with might by his Spirit in my innermost being. Now that's a great message. That, that, That is a wonderful message. You say, well, what's so wonderful about it? Well, at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, there's a wonderful doxology. And this is what Paul says. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to the power at work in us, unto him be glory. Now he's just said that the power at work in us is the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. But what is that power, what is that strength, what is that enabling capable of doing? It is capable of giving us the strength to do immeasurably beyond anything that we ask or imagine. In other words, beyond your small ambitions. Beyond all commitments to mediocrity. We're talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're talking about Christ strengthening you with might by his Spirit in the inner man. We're talking about the power that is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine that is actively at work in us. Why? Because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Now, this can sound like just so much theory and so much theology, but it's intended to be mixed with faith. It is intended to become the dynamic of our very lives. This became brought home very forcibly to me many years ago. I'd started preaching as a teenager in my spare time. I'd become a businessman, was working in business, was preaching all my spare time, got so much preaching, couldn't continue my business and do it properly. And so we left the business world, went into ministry in the youth ministry. One day, the leader of our youth ministry, just come back from three months tour of preaching in America, came back to England, marched into my office, and without any introduction, He said, uh, January, February, March of next year, I'm sending you to America. And he gave me a piece of paper. He said, here's a list of 13 cities that you'll visit, 13 consecutive weeks of ministry. I've just been there, and in each place they asked me to return. My calendar was full. On my recommendation, uh, they said that they'd like you to go. And so it's all fixed up, and I'm suddenly confronted with the fact that I've got to leave my home and my family and go to this foreign country among people I don't understand and spend three months of my life there. Well, I wasn't too excited about that for a number of obvious reasons. But then he went on to say this. Oh, and by the way, the first week you will share the ministry with Paul Reese. And the second week you'll share the ministry with Steve Nolford. And the third week you'll be with Alan Redpath. 
Now, these names may mean something to you, or they may not, but it would be like a rookie being invited to play with pro bowlers. In other words, it was just a list of all the top preachers that I'd listened to as a kid and a young person and whom I'd admired greatly. So now I've got to leave home, got to go away for three months on my own to a country I've never been to. I'm just a young, relatively inexperienced preacher. I'm being thrown off the deep end, and I've got to do it, yoked up to all the best preachers around at that time. And my response was, I think, perfectly understandable. It was to me anyway. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And his response was unforgettable, which is rather obvious because I couldn't tell you it now if I'd forgotten it. This was his response. Jesus Christ in you is adequate. Get on with it. And he turned on his heel and walked out of the room. Now, here's a question for you. Was he right or was he wrong? Was he right or was he wrong? Well, let me put the question another way. If God calls you to something... Does he leave you totally incapable of doing it and allow you to twist slowly in the wind? Or does God call you to something and with the calling empower you through the indwelling presence of the risen Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit to be more than adequate for all the demands he lays upon you? Well, as far as I was concerned, I came to a very simple conclusion. That God would never call me to make a fool of myself in order that God might get his jollies out of seeing me make a fool of myself. That in actual fact, if God was going to be consistent with his own nature and was going to be committed as he was to proclaiming a message, then the fact that he was going to send me into a situation for which I was totally inadequate didn't make any sense at all unless he was going to empower me with strength in my inner person through the indwelling Christ. And so I took a deep breath, I held my nose, and I took off, and I'll tell you something else. I've been operating on that basis ever since. Jesus Christ in you is adequate. Get on with it. Emmanuel, God with us, takes a step further now. God with us, now in the person of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit, lives in us to strengthen us with might by his spirit. The, the net result of all that is that you really aren't as free as you thought you were to say, I can't. It, it, it takes that option away, doesn't it? I mean, you can still say, I won't, but we usually don't want to say that. God says, do this. You say, I won't. Oh, no, God, I can't do that. Oh, God, I can't do that. And God probably will have a little word for you like he had for me. Jesus Christ in you is adequate. Get on with it. Jesus Christ in you is adequate. Get on with it. Uh, of course, there's one key to this. You notice that the Apostle Paul prays that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. The operative word there is dwell. Now, th there are two Greek words that are rather similar. Katoi eto and paroi eto. Something like that. I don't have my notes in front of me, but from memory, very, very similar words. But I know what they mean specifically. The first one, the para one, means 
to live in a house like a stranger on a temporary basis. And the second word means to live in a house like the owner on a permanent basis. Got it? Now, which word does he use here? I pray that Christ may dwell in your heart. Does not mean, I pray that Christ might temporarily reside in your life like a total stranger. That is not what he says. What he says is, I pray that Christ might settle down and feel at home in your life as the owner who is there on a totally permanent basis. And here ends the problem so often. So often we will pray a prayer. Oh, yes, I need my sins forgiven. Oh, yes, I want Jesus in my heart. Oh, yes, I want to feel good about myself. Oh, yes, I want my problems fixed. Oh, yes, I believe that God loves me unconditionally. Oh, yes, I believe that God makes all grace to bound to me. Oh, yes, I want all these things. And yes, if I have to ask Jesus into my heart, that's exactly what I'll do to get all these things. And he stays there as a stranger. Kept in the vestibule, of the home. He tries different doors and he finds them locked. You see, the great issue, the great issue for so many people is this, that they have not recognized the difference between Christ dwelling temporarily as an alien or a stranger and Christ dwelling permanently as the owner and the Lord of their lives. It's a very easy image to apply. I won't obviously spend time doing it. It's not necessary. But just try to imagine the Lord in your life. Is he perfectly free with your glad, joyful acquiescence? Is he perfectly free to move into any room of your heart? Would you be embarrassed to have him in your bedroom? Would what is going on in your den and the indwelling Christ be compatible? I, I don't need to make applications here, do I? Just allow the Spirit of God to take these simple thoughts home and ask yourself the question, is Christ dwelling in my heart? Is he there as the owner, feeling perfectly at home, able to do exactly what he wishes with this life of mine, which he created and which he redeemed with his precious blood? So you put all this together and you begin to understand the challenge not only of God with us but of Christ in us. When Jill and I got married I lived in Manchester in the YMCA hostel and Jill lived at home with her parents. Then we got married we decided we'd like to live together which is a normal sort of procedure and so you'll notice we decided to get married and then live together. That's the way you do it. Just a little word there, no extra charge. And then we got a house made available to us by the bank. It was one that they'd foreclosed on. It was, wasn't much of a place. They said we could rent it for 12 shillings and sixpence a week, which at that time, oh, was two or three dollars. That was about what it was worth. And so we were all excited. We got our first little home, and we were going to move into it, newly married couple, and we are going to live happily ever after. There was only one problem. And that was that the former tenant wouldn't get out. <laughs> he wouldn't get out. And we tried all that we could to get him out, but I couldn't do much about it because he was my boss. <laughs> and it was, it was just a rotten situation. 
I mean, we're all married, we're all ready to go, and we want to move into our little house. It's ours by right, and he won't go. Now, where would your sympathies lie? Would your sympathies lie with the man who'd no business being there, staying there? Or the people who had every right to be there and couldn't get in? I know where your sympathies would lie. Here's um, a question for you. Where would your sympathies lie? With somebody who says, I've given my heart to Christ, but I'm going to stay in control of it and not allow him whose right it is to fill and flood my life with himself to do it. Is that right? No, the right thing is to say, Lord Jesus, you created me and you redeemed me and you paid me the incredible compliment of saying that you would come and live within my life clean it up and fill it with yourself and overflow it with your glory and work through it and make your presence felt in the area of my influence. And my prayer, Lord Jesus, is simply this, that I might give you not occasional keys to some of the rooms that I let you in occasionally, but I'd like to give you my bunch of keys. Dwell as the owner and master and Lord of my heart. And be in me all that you want to be. And do through me all that you long to do. And then I'll live to your glory. Strength with might in my inner person. Able to see you accomplish in me immeasurably above all that I could ever ask or imagine. According to your power that works in me. Emmanuel. God with us to save us from our sin, to reveal the character and nature of a hidden God to us, to comfort us as we walk through the valley of the shadow, and to live within us, to strengthen us with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Let me suggest to you that the conclusion of this year, and as we stand on the brink of another year, that you take some time out to check to what extent Christ dwells in you. Let's pray together. Perhaps some of you have never recognized that simple picture of the Lord Jesus outside the heart's door knocking that he might come in. Never opened your heart to him. You recognize your need of him. You recognize that there needs to be a calling out to him. In the quietness of your own heart, you may like to repeat the words of a children's chorus we used to use in England into my heart come into my heart come into my heart Lord Jesus come in today come in to stay come into my heart Lord Jesus Lord it is a simple prayer of a contrite heart that touches your heart and prompts you to move on our behalf but Lord we recognize that some of us have asked you to come into our lives but it's been as a stranger as an alien it's been as somebody who is limited because of our lack of faith, our lack of trust our lack of faithfulness scripture tells us that Christ is to live in our hearts by faith Christ is to be in us to do immeasurably above all that we could ask or imagine we have to admit that so often we settle for mediocrity Lord, we would ask that deep in our hearts your spirit 
would impress upon us the need that there is to crown you as the Lord, to acknowledge you as the sufficient one, and to live in the constant enjoyment of your indwelling presence. Lord, hear our prayers. Let our cries ascend unto you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.